years ago, and I'm talking years and years ago, I worked for a landscape company as a, as a pest control technician, and we had this, this metal shed out back that had all of our chemicals in it, and we had a massive rat problem. You know, of all places in the chemical shed, and you thought, you know, from the years in them chewing holes in the chemical buckets and everything, that they would have died. But it's like they had this lead stomach and they were immune to everything. It kind of remind me of a roach, right? Been around for thousands of years. Um, and so we tried everything. We tried homeopathic remedies to rid ourselves of these rats. We tried mouse traps. We tried everything. Even tried a pellet gun. Didn't do any good, right? And it's not because we were a poor shot. You could, you could fill this thing with lead, and he would still keep on running. We finally ended up getting them, but not because, you know, of our own doings. In fact, we even tried to build a better mousetrap at one point, prove upon others, and it still didn't work. And we were always left baffled at the end of the day by how this thing never got trapped, yet he, the food was always gone, the bait was always gone. Over the years, mankind has improved and built a better mousetrap, Right? Mankind's learned how to trap rodents. Mankind's learned how to trap wildlife. Mankind's even learned how to trap each other. But man has never figured out how to trap Jesus. Ask the Pharisees, they'll tell you. Pharisees have tried to trap Jesus over the years and can never do it, right? Because you just can't trap Jesus. You just can't do it. It's kind of like, oh, I don't know. I guess trapping Jesus is kind of like trying to grasp jello. You ever try to do that? Pick jello up? What happens? You squeeze it and it goes out between your fingers, right? And all you're left with is a sticky residue that reminds you that jello was there, but you just couldn't catch it. Now, notice I said trap, not grasp, because there is a difference. You can grasp Jesus, but you can't trap him. And why would you trap Jesus? Well, the, the, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus because it's out of malice, because they can't stand him right? People who grasp Jesus, grasp Jesus because they want to hang on to him. They don't want to let him go because they know that Jesus is the light, because they know that Jesus is the only form of security, right? But not the Pharisees. And that's what we find in today's account. The Pharisees, after all their failings with trying to trap Jesus, have gone out and think that they have built the perfect Jesus trap. And the irony of it all was they enlisted their bitter rivals, the Herodians, to do it. These two groups have nothing to do with one another. They hate each other, but they're united in the fact that their hatred for Jesus far outweighs the hatred they have for one another. So they collaborate on all this, and they come up with this perfect trap. And so here's how they start with it. They start by trying to butter Jesus up, right? It's a form of flattery. They start, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, right? That form of flattery, like Jesus isn't going to see through this, right? He does. He knows that they're filled with malice. But he lets it go, because he knows what's coming next. And here they go. Here's the perfect, what seems like brilliant way to trap Jesus with this question. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the U.S. government or not? Just think about those questions for a second, right? This is designed to, to get Jesus in a bind, right? Put him between a rock and a hard place. Because think about it. If on the one hand that Jesus says, 
It's lawful to pay taxes. Now he's really upset the Pharisees. He's upset the low-income people, the poor, the homeless, right? who are tired of Caesar and Rome meddling in their affairs. And if on the other hand he says, oh yeah, it is unlawful to, to pay taxes uh, to Rome, well, the Herodians are going to go back and try to tell Caesar that Jesus is inciting a riot among the people, right? So it's like designed to keep in between, you know, to stick in between a rock and a hard place. But Jesus, if this is a brilliant, you know, kind of trap, Jesus' answer is that much more ingenious. Because like I said, you just can't, you can't trap Jesus. But before we get to Jesus' answer to this question, let's say that you were that person they asked you. Is it lawful to pay uh, taxes to Caesar or not? How would you answer that? I don't want you to answer me. I want you to think about it. Chew on that question. What would you do? How would you try to answer that question? So Jesus then goes a little bit further, right? He doesn't answer the question originally. He starts by asking them a couple of questions, right? First was, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Why are you testing me yet again? Haven't you learned in the past, right? Haven't you, that kind of, I can imagine that's his tone almost. Like, you know, haven't you learned that you can't do this to me? Haven't I embarrassed you enough? <laughs> when are you going to see that you can't trap me? And then what does he say? He, then he demands that they produce a coin for the tax. Now, this is interesting. Nowhere in our, in our lessons have we ever learned that Jesus had money on him, right? Nowhere in our lessons have we ever learned that Jesus has any kind of possessions. Everywhere he goes, he's sending the disciples out to find a place for them to lay their head, to find food, to do this, that, or the other. So Jesus says to them, he puts it back in their court, produce this coin for the tax. Now I want you to think about this. He has nothing in his pockets, and they have no problems producing a coin. And who is his main opponent here? It's, the Herodians were, were along the way, but his main opponent here are the Pharisees. And they, of all people, have no problem holding out a coin to Jesus. This is kind of ironic, right? And this is why Jesus knows the malice in their heads, because he knows that these people are all wrapped up in the economics of Rome the things that they shouldn't even be wrapped up in. And this is why he calls them hypocrites, right? And then Jesus further delays answering the original question. He questions them even more. He, so I imagine Jesus flips his coin up, catches it in the palm of his hand, holds it out and says, and, and whose head is that on that coin? Whose inscription is that? Hmm. And how do they answer him? Of course. Right off the bat, both groups answer him, oh, that's Caesar's. That's Caesar. Of course they know whose head it is. Of course they, they know this, right? Now, there's something you need to know, very interesting about this denarius. That ha one, it has Caesar's image on it, okay? But it not only has Caesar's image on it, there was this inscription on that coin. It reads this, Phileas August Pontifex Maximus. And it reads roughly this, Tiberius Caesar, 
August, son of divine August, Augustus, high priest. Why is that important? Because this is man who's now claiming divinity. And here's a people who stamped this coin with human hands, who, who, who deified this emperor. It's a false god. You know, and for the Pharisees, this image of Caesar and the false divinity should recall the Decalogue from Exodus chapter 20, where it says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image of, or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The Pharisees of all people should know this. They should know that what they're doing is wrong. They just don't want to hear it. Because they're all about power. They're all about wealth. They're all about their own well-being, stature, and not about being about God. And since the Pharisees had this money on temple grounds just a chapter earlier where Jesus cleared out the temple, they're very much complicit in all this. Now once Jesus does the right thing and calls them all out, then he answers the question. Now Jesus gets to that answer. Therefore, render to Caesar what Caesar's? And render to God what's God's. You know, there's many different interpretations of this passage over the years, and I don't know how you've interpreted it. But on the surface, some people think it's all about stewardship, right? Some people have interpreted this passage to be, um, oh, how can I put this? Maybe about a separation of church and state, right? Other people have looked at this passage and thought, well, you know, God doesn't care about trivial things like human-made money. Doesn't care about your currency, so to speak, right? Um, and others, like one commentator pointed out, will say that, uh, that Jesus is teaching about our duty as God's children to be obedient to the government. You know, the law is the law, and you got to pay to the government what's the government. And some of that is right. Some of that is about stewardship. Some of that is about civil obedience versus heavenly obedience. But deeper down, it is a whole lot more than that. What it's really about, it's a first commandment issue. It's about idolatry. It's about image. It's about value. Whose image was on that, that denarius? Caesar's. Who made that denarius? Man. Now, I can't help think about when we think about you know, the image. Also, let me ask you this question. Who gave that coin value? Man. Now, I don't know how about you think this, but I think this way too. When I'm starting to think about image of value, I go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis when God stamped man into existence. And what did God say? Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. That's a value that's priceless. It doesn't even measure up to anything that mankind uh, can say or, or create. And you know, there's been many, um, many people commemorated on our currency over the years, right? 
George Washington and Jefferson and all these other people on there. I wonder, I wonder when Jesus said, hey, show me the, 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 the money for the tax. I wonder what he would have done if somebody pulled out a dollar bill and handed it to him. I wonder what his response would have been at that point, right? I mean, it's not so much about who's on the dollar bill. We all know that, right? But what's it say on the backside of the dollar bill? And God we trust, right? So you imagine somebody pulling out a dollar bill, and here you go, Jesus, look. It says, in God we trust. And I can imagine Jesus looking at us and going, yeah, but in which God? Which God do you trust? You know, we can change the image on the currency, and we can change the inscriptions on the currency, but you can't change the problem. You can't change people and the problem of idolatry. That's always going to be a struggle. It's always going to be something that's here, right? We're always going to struggle with divided loyalties and, and, with, and with, with idolatry and splitting our time and, and, you know, and what we do with, with things in our lives. You know, um, as children, as God's children, as His creation, being stamped in His image, we, we have that value that's greater than anything that you can ever print on currency, any, any words it can ever say. And then the problem is, is that we're constantly being seduced and entrapped by the ways of a wayward world. The images that flood in front of us are always trying to devalue the image that we've been given by God. Our loyalties are constantly being tested and divided. You know, money's king. Time spent on other things other than God. Talents are wasted at times on human contrivances. And when we do those things, when we fall into the ways of the world like that, then what we do is we ourselves attempt to devalue the image of God. That's us doing those things. You can't take the value away that God has any more than you can trap Jesus but you can certainly attempt on your own to devalue those things by misplacing them with the ways of the world. And that's really what this passage is. And it's amazing also uh, how this shows up in our attitudes towards things. Isn't it amazing that we can forget God when we have things, right? We can shove them aside because we think we have everything we need. Isn't it amazing how we call on God when we don't have things? Um, and isn't it amazing how we blame God when we lose things? Kind of reminds me of this guy um, who once was complaining to God and who said, you know, only if I had some money, uh, then I would give some to God. But I barely have enough to pay my bills and to put gas in my car and do the things I want to do. Only if I had some extra time would I give some portion of that back to God. But, you know, I barely have enough time going to work all day long and going to all my clubs that I enjoy being in and, and being with my family. Oh, and only if I had some talents would I give some back to God. But, you know, I can't even sing, nonetheless put a, a hammer to a nail. And God heard all this grumbling and looked down and had compassion upon this man and did something God, you know, rarely did. And, and that was he gave the man everything he asked for. 
He, he loaded this guy out with, with wealth. He gave this man all kinds of time to do things, right? And he gave this man all kinds of talents. And then God stepped back and sat down and he waited. And he waited. And he waited some more. And seeing that this guy did nothing with it for God, God took everything back from him. Snatched away his money, snatched away his time, took back his talents. And then the guy started to groan again. If only I had a portion of what God took back from me, I would give him. God said, oh, shut up. (laughs) And then man went to his friends and said, you know, I'm not so sure I believe in God anymore. How true is that sometimes? That we look at God in that kind of light. You know what it is? It's here, and it's, but more importantly, it's here, right? We, I think, at times as human beings, forget that the things that we have, our health, our time, our talents, aren't ours. They belong to God. God entrusted them into our care and calls upon us to use those things for the benefit of His kingdom. But we lose sight of that. We lose sight of that. And, that, and that's, that's, that's that whole image value problem um, where we try to replace some of those things with other things. And that's what it comes down to, image and value. What images are we bearing? Are we stamped with? Are we given value to? And so I can imagine Jesus flipping that coin up in the air and catching it in the palm of his hand and reaching out to each and every one of us and going, my friends, just whose image do you bear? Whose image do you bear? And so if we're able to realize that the things that we have, like our time, talents, and possessions, our earnings, aren't really ours, um, then we can realize that what, what our main purpose is, right? It's to portray the likeness that God gave us in His image and go out and do those things and bear witness to the world of the kind of God that we have. You know, we might divide our budgets and tithe to God while paying our bills and, and you know, setting money into our, our 401ks and <laughs> paying our taxes to the government. We might divide our time between spending time here in worship on Sunday morning and working on Monday and going to ball games on Fridays and Saturdays. And while we might divide those things, what we should never divide is our loyalty. We live with one foot in this world and one foot in God's kingdom. But that doesn't mean we're divided, or we should be. We should be fully invested, wholly, as children of God. And give to God what is God's. In many ways, our lives are divided. And, you know, the images that flood our lives should never replace the image that we're called to bear. So if we belong to God, let us render to God what's His. Think about this. Our Lord rendered His life for us so that we could be given back to God. In our baptisms, God rendered us clean and whole and pure and righteous so that we would never be divided from Him ever again. Our earthly currency may change, and the images that, that, that bear on this currency and values will change, but our heavenly currency never will. And that's the redeeming blood of Christ 
a blood that's priceless. The image we bear isn't stamped by human hands either, is it? It's stamped by an eternal God. So I pray, my friends, I pray. I pray that we will render to God what is God's. Because we belong to Him. And to God be all the glory. Amen.